please open your Bibles with me to the book of Jude. We'll be reading verses 11 through 13 this evening. Let us give ear now to the holy and inerrant and life-giving word of God, Jude, beginning in verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we know that your word is like a fire, and it is like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Would you purify our hearts this evening, burn away the dross? Would you break up stony hearts, and would you build up your people in their most holy faith? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Frederick Fleet was one of two lookouts stationed high up in the crow's nest of the RMS Titanic on that fateful night of April 14, 1912. Uh, The lookout's job was to scan the horizon for dangerous ice lying in the path of the ship and to sound the warning immediately if anything dangerous were spotted. The deadly iceberg that would sink Titanic later that night was spotted too late, however. The lookouts still gave their frantic warning, but the warning came sadly too late. And when the warning comes too late, the results can be tragic and extreme. Well, what Jude is doing in our passage this evening is issuing an urgent and an ominous warning cry against the presence and the danger of false teaching within the church. It is the danger of false teaching that now takes the center stage in Jude's diatribe in these three verses. And the tone of Jude's scathing rhetoric here is unmistakable, and it is intended to function in a jolting manner. The gravity of false teaching is meant to come across by his tone. In this case, the the false teaching that, that grace is merely a license to continue in sin, the gravity of the danger of that false teaching cannot be overstated. And here's what I want us to see from this passage this evening. We must, Christians must beware of the presence and the danger of false teaching in the church. If you flip that to its converse, then you would see that, of course, we should love and value the life-giving truth of the full gospel ever the more. 
But I want to point out three features of this text this evening. And the first is an ancient attestation of woe. Jude begins this passage with the exclamation, Woe to them. He then goes on to give us a, a threefold Old Testament authentication for his pronouncement of woe. And this is indeed a prophetic pronouncement. The very use of this word, uh, Richard Bauckham puts it this way, implies prophetic consciousness on the part of the speaker. Uh, There's a self-consciousness on the part of Jude that he has taken on the role and the function of a prophet over against these false teaching heretics. A woe oracle in the Old Testament was a common function for the Old Testament prophets as they denounced and condemned on behalf of and with the authority of God himself the wickedness of pagan nations or even in pronouncing judgment against the false teachers of Israel or the unfaithfulness even of the covenant community. The Lord Jesus himself would pronounce a number of similar woes, curses of woe against the unbelieving and wicked false teachers and leaders of Israel and, of course, others who refused to believe. Another way we see the prophetic nature of this oracle of woe is that Jude speaks of these false teachers all in the past tense. It's a particularly prophetic way of speaking. Uh, he's speaking of, of present or future events in the past tense in order to emphasize the certainty of them. They perished. These false teachers perished past tense in the rebellion of Korah. He, modern way of hearing language similar to that might be a parent who instead of to a particularly recalcitrant, recalcitrant child perhaps Instead of saying, you're going to get it, might say, you've had it. It's spoken in the past tense because it is so certain. This is a common way of the prophet's language. Now, Jude then goes on to give the reason behind this prophetic pronouncement of woe. And he does so by equating these false teachers with three notorious Old Testament figures. Essentially what he's doing is putting forward these Old Testament figures as a, as a type or a prefigure of which the false teachers are the present fulfillment of. And the first Old Testament figure he uses is Cain. Woe to them because they walked in the way of Cain. The language walked in the way of uh, is an expression related to the conduct and the direction and the manner of one's lifestyle, their behavior, thus following after someone's moral example. And these have modeled themselves, Jude says, after the way of Cain. That would beg the question for the reader, what is the way of Cain? We know from the Bible's various descriptions of Cain that he is the primary example of a faithless man in contrast to his brother Abel from the book of Abel. From the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, Cain was the first murderer and the original example of hatred. Cain showed a a particularly defiant disregard for God's law and instruction, uh, even acting out against God's instructions despite having been warned ahead of time. God had warned Cain of the danger of letting sin rule over him. You remember God told Cain, sin is crouching at your door. 
And its desire is to rule over you. Christopher Green sums up Cain's response to said warning. After such a clear warning from God, his action will demonstrate whether he is willing to submit to God's rules or not. In the event, he is not. He gave in to the exact thing God had warned him against, sin ruling over him. Here is a man who at least by example disregards the commandments of God and a man given over to the rule and the dominion of sin in his life. Cain was also seen in various sources of Jewish thought from that day as one who enticed others to sin. It was, it was common rabbinic teaching that Jude was known as a corrupter of the race of men. Uh, And it's not at all unlikely that Jude's readers would have made that same inference here by Jude's reference to the way of Cain. David Helm explains this inference. By his words and his deeds, Cain preached that God doesn't mean what he says. He killed Abel because he believed that God's word wasn't true. And so the way of Cain in which they have walked is, is, is a blatant disregard for God's authority a giving in to the rule of sin and even worse, leading others to the same by example, if not by word. Well, the second example Jude selects is Balaam. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Now, there's a, there's a heightened intensity to this verb over against walked in the way of. You might say they plunged into Balaam's error. The, the idea here is a, is a reckless disregard for any consequences and a wholehearted commitment to error. Well, again, that would force the question, what was the error to which they have abandoned themselves? Numbers chapter 22 through 24 recounts for us the way, uh, the story of how Balaam was hired by the Moabite king Balak to curse the people of God. Uh, We know the story from those chapters that instead God prevented him through various means from doing so and instead caused him to pronounce a blessing upon the covenant people. But that is not the last we hear of Balaam. In fact, the very next episode in the story of Israel, recorded in the first few verses of Numbers chapter 25, what we find are the Israelite men engaging in the worship of Baal and sexual immorality with Moabite women at Peor, thus causing the anger of the Lord to to burn against the same covenant people that he has just six verses prior blessed through the prophet Balaam. It's not until Numbers chapter 31 that we find out that it was Balaam who was the influence behind such gross immorality. We read this, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident at Peor, Numbers 31, 16. So it turns out Balaam showed Balak after all how to alienate God's people from their God. It was through the enticement to immorality that they were led to idolatry and apostasy. Revelation chapter 2 talks about those who hold to the teaching 
of Balaam and attributes this very thing to Balaam being responsible for causing Israel to practice sexual immorality. And so likewise, these false teachers, says Jude, were guilty of enticing or at least attempting to entice God's people into sin and immorality. Jude says they're also in this for what they get out of it, whether that's money, that wasn't an uncommon thing in those days, or, or status, we're not particularly sure. Uh, but the strength of the analogy is on Balaam as someone who entices others to immorality. This is what those who have crept in among you are really like, says Jude, like Balaam who lured the people of Israel into gross immorality. Woe to anyone who entices others to sin, particularly to sexual sins. Christians are to beware of the danger of any who entice you to sin in any such ways. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but the companion of fools shall be destroyed. Proverbs thirteen twenty. Now the third and final Old Testament figure to whom Jude likens these false teachers is Korah. Uh, he says they perished in Korah's rebellion. In Numbers chapter 16, Korah is the notorious figure who leads a mutiny against Moses and Aaron. The word Jude uses here uh, for rebellion really highlights the, the vocal opposition nature of this rebellion. Korah was the leader of this. He was enticing others, inciting others to rebel as well. And this, thus, for Jude's purposes, Korah is the archetype of an ungodly leader who would defiantly challenge God's appointed leaders and God's revealed truth and would influence others to do the same and meet just the same consequences as Korah for such a rebellious challenge. Uh, These false teachers are, as D.A. Carson puts it, rebelling against properly constituted spiritual authority. Now, the other focus that Jude intends here by his reference to Korah, in fact, his primary reference by this example, is on the exceptional character of the judgment Korah experienced. He was destroyed by God. The, the earth itself opened up to swallow Korah and those he had influenced alive. We read this in Numbers chapter 16. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Numbers 16, 33. These teachers among Jude's flock will suffer the same end without exception as if it had already happened. They have perished in Korah's rebellion. Now the use of Korah in this ancient attestation of woe shows us a progressive element as well. Uh, The careful Bible reader will note that these examples were not placed in chronological order. This is because Jude has ordered them according to another purpose. Korah is placed last to emphasize the the destruction. In fact, the emphasis on that word in this verse is great. Uh, There's a progression in the severity of these examples. They walked the path, they abandoned themselves to it, and they were destroyed. It is not hard to decipher Jude's intent. This is similar to the progression 
and its ultimate end revealed to us in Psalm 1. That spiral of lifestyle that inevitably leads to judgment and death. They, he, he who walks in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the way of sinners, and then sitting in the very seat of scoffers, and the psalm finishes, the way of the wicked will perish, Psalm 1.6. So we see, first of all, this ancient attestation of woe. I want us now to see the present portrait of woe. At this point, uh, Jude, in verses 12 through 13, launches into a series of metaphors to paint the real picture of these intruders. And what he's doing is highlighting their effect among God's people. Remember, they had crept in unnoticed. They weren't advertising that they were false teachers. Uh, These were nice folks. They talked a lot about grace. But Jude unleashes a diatribe of metaphors in order to paint a clear and unmistakable picture of who they really are. William Barclay calls this passage one of the greatest passages of invective in the New Testament. It is blazing moral indignation at its hottest. The first thing Jude calls them in this uh, list is hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. There are some translations that, uh, that refer to them as spots or blemishes rather than reefs. Uh, that's probably due to the word that Peter uses in a parallel passage in Second Peter, but the overwhelming majority of evidence in this case in Jude is that he is using a different word that means rock or reef. And thus the picture that he's con- conveying is that of, uh, of a reef just under the surface of the water, invisible to a ship, presenting the undetected lurking danger of shipwreck as a ship is seeking to navigate its way into a harbor. Thus it is the danger that these teachers represent that Jude is alerting his readers to. It says they they feast with you without fear. There's a self-confident arrogance that characterizes these antinomian false teachers. I think Richard Baucom is, is right when he explains the irreverent attitude probably relates to the spiritual arrogance of the false teachers who behave as though they were their own masters, not subject to the Lord. There's there's an ironic self-righteousness conveyed by those who would dismiss any obligation to obey God's commandments and to dismiss anyone who might suggest that obedience is a duty laid upon believers. And these influencers were, were a particular danger because of the fact that they were intimately among them. He uh, says that they feast with you at your love feasts without fear. Uh, the love feasts were a, a fellowship meal in, that, in those early days of the church among the covenant community uh, in which they would have a meal together and in the midst of which the Lord's Supper would be celebrated. We know that that uh, type of a setting was being abused in other ways uh, in the book of First Corinthians. But here, the, this intimate time of fellowship and teaching and communion with God and his people in the sacrament was, was the setting uh, that enhanced the danger that these teachers represented. Peter Davids explains, the problem is that these teachers are dangerous to have around, especially since the meal was the time when prophetic words and teaching were shared. 
Here, here was the time when these Christians were, were particularly susceptible to the danger of false teaching because of the intimate setting and what went on during that setting. And Jude is not going to allow his precious flock to go on unawares of the danger that lurks just beneath the surface. He next calls them shepherds feeding themselves. Uh, this is an, an ironic metaphor. A shepherd's one job was to care for something other than himself. And here in this church setting, the opposite of that was happening. Rather than caring and protecting, they only had their own well-being in mind. The Old Testament anticipated that, that Davidic ideal that was to come, the good shepherd king who would rule over God's people, fulfilled, of course, by the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd, uh, and, and this was to be a paradigm, uh, always was and always is, a paradigm to be exemplified by those appointed under-shepherds in his care for the church through them, that church that he purchased with his own blood. These false teachers, however, portrayed the opposite of such a paradigm. They were selfish shepherds, and God never has, and he does not take this lightly as Jude's Inspired pen makes perfectly clear. Clearly, Jude has in mind well-known Old Testament language, something like that of Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 2. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? What the sheep need is the, the solid food and the pure spiritual milk of the Word of God taught to them modeled for them, the glorious gospel proclaimed in all of its power to save and to strengthen and to change from within. Uh, instead, uh, instead of getting the, the gospel's glorious double cure for sin's guilt and power, they were merely getting the false comfort of a false gospel that has no power to change, a grace that functions as a license to continue in sin, and a God who is never displeased with anyone. Jude calls them waterless clouds in, in the first of four metaphors that he pulls from the natural world. Uh, this, is, this one is, is the picture of clouds which, which give the appearance uh, of being heavy laden with coming rain, uh, thus bringing life-giving relief and sustenance to a barren landscape, but instead bringing nothing as they blow over without offering a drop of sustenance. Do not be deceived, Jude says. They may talk a big game of grace, but that is a mirage. The grace of which they speak is powerless to enable you to grow, and thus is not any kind of that life-giving and holiness-producing biblical gospel grace. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Proverbs twenty-five fourteen. 14. Uh, it's the deceptiveness of the false teachers that's being highlighted here. Uh, what they claim to offer is, is refreshing truth, but instead it is a mirage in a barren desert. Paul Gardner wisely says this, those who sit light to God's word are just like this. Those who would lead us in other directions and suggest to congregations or students committed to their care that there is no need to follow Scripture and the Word of God, in fact, provide nothing which increases growth or brings life 
to God's people. We are to beware of a lack of biblical substance underneath an attractive veneer. There are tremendous implications here for the way that we, and the importance uh, that we attach to the selection of a local church, a ministry to sit under in college or elsewhere. Similarly, Jude compares them to fruitless trees in late autumn. There's a time when it's right to expect a tree to be laden with the bounty for which it was planted. Uh, This would be like an apple orchard drawing its crowds, but completely bereft of any harvest. The Bible often uses the imagery of fruit-bearing to show the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. You think of the fruit of the Spirit, of course, or back again to Psalm 1, where the believer is described as one in whom the Lord produces abundant and visible fruit. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, Psalm 1.3. The Lord Jesus, speaking particularly of false teachers in a similar way to Jude, False teachers revealing themselves in the absence of such fruit-bearing says this, you will recognize them by their fruits. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 16, 19, and 20. Jude says these fruitless trees are, are twice dead. Uh, indicating either maybe a reference to the second death of eternal judgment, but I think more likely uh, this is description uh, anticipating the following idea of their being subsequently uprooted, twice dead, uprooted. Gene Green explains the metaphor of being fruitless and uprooted trees points to Jude's desire to demonstrate their absolutely corrupt and useless nature. He holds out no hope for them. Jude continues this unveiling portrait using another metaphor from nature as he calls them wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. The the metaphors of the rainless clouds and the fruitless trees show the false teachers to be completely void uh, of anything truly good and of the Spirit. But here in this metaphor, Jude, by contrast, shows them to be full of the opposite. They're not bringing anything that's good for you, but instead they spew what is harmful and foul. Richard Baucom puts it well. They, uh, that is the clouds and the trees of the previous two metaphors, they produce nothing. The waves produce something. But the product is horribly unlike the teaching and the conduct of the true Christian prophet. Instead of edifying other Christians, it soils them like the dirt thrown up by a stormy sea. Jude here is clearly alluding to the book of Isaiah, chapter 57, verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. So not only is the sea an image of instability and uncontrollability, but it's also a picture of the stirring up of the pollution from deep below. Whatever they claim to be offering. As nicely as they want to put it, Jude is pulling the veil off and revealing what it is actually that they offer from God's perspective, and it is pollution and shame. Paul Gardner poignantly warns us, 
These false and evil teachers are as dangerous and as out of control as the wildest of seas. The foam produced by the waves provides a vivid picture of the cesspool produced by their shameful conduct. If the picture brings to mind real fear, so it should. The greatest protection for this congregation and Christians down through the ages is to be fearful of all who might lead them astray. This is true for churches. It's true for our families. Parents, church leaders ought to be fiercely vigilant of who teaches and influences the children of our homes and of our churches. The final picture metaphor that Jude uses here is that they are wandering stars. The word for wandering here is the word where we get our word for planet from. So the, the idea behind this phrase, which was common in ancient literature, uh, is that the planets are stars that seem to be moving in, a, in an off course. Uh, they are wandering off course. In fact, the noun that comes from that same word is the word that literally means error, a wandering from the truth. And, and it's not just that the teachers themselves were in error. One ought not to navigate by a wandering star is the point Jude is making. There's a deceptive nature to their teaching that he's highlighting here by this imagery. This image of a, of a wandering star, as Christopher Green explains, provides a neat image for deceptive leadership that promises security and a safe road home, but actually delivers uncertainty and danger. And the longer the traveler believed in the certainty of his wandering star, the greater the peril he was in. This whole pronouncement of woe thus far, the, the, the piling up of metaphor upon metaphor to paint the picture, the, the use of the, the notorious Old Testament figures, uh, if, if nothing else, ought to show us without mistake, uh, ought to show God's people with unmistakable lucidity how much God cares about them. The, the language of Jude here, uh, even his vitriol, is evidence of God's protective love for the people of his church, for the guardianship of his children. To do anything other than what Jude is doing here in this warning would be like an unfaithful lookout who would refuse to report the iceberg right ahead. This, this warning is, is evidence of the ferocious, jealous care that God has for the members of his church. These are people who are precious to him, and his protective jealousy knows no bounds. He will not allow them to be led astray. This ought to cause any teacher or leader or anyone who is in the place of leading or influencing other Christians to tremble in holy fear and reliance upon God's enabling grace to carry out that holy duty in a manner pleasing to him. Uh, it ought to cause us to value the faithful teaching of God's word and the influence of godly parents and teachers and pastors. Well, the third and final feature of this passage, we've seen the ancient attestation of woe and the present portrait of woe. Now we will see the future finality of woe. Jude concludes his pronouncement of woe in the most ominous manner. 
after his application of the notorious Old Testament figures, after all of the vivid pictures unveiling the effect these false teachers were really having, Jude now gives us the pronouncement of their eternal demise. The ultimate end for these false teachers who would lead God's people astray. Jude says these are those for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Another way of translating this might be the blackest darkness. This picture of utter darkness is, of course, one of the Bible's primary descriptions of hell. An eternal black darkness. The other picture the Bible uses is eternal fire and torment, and Jude uses that imagery elsewhere in this letter, but here the the image of blackness is more in line with the metaphor of a star uh, and the fate of a wandering star. Jesus would speak in this language of darkness as well, referring on different occasions of those being cast into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Puritan Thomas Manton describes that image of that outer darkness as being furthest from God, the fountain of all life and glory, and so expressing that extreme misery, horror, and torment which is in hell. The the, the black darkness is is the infinite separation from the light of God's favor and presence And I don't know that it's humanly possible to comprehend the utter horror of that thought. It is not a pleasant topic. It is unsettling. It's almost universally unwelcome. It is terrible. And yet it is unmistakably real. And it is the justly deserved and horrifying destiny of those who will not repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Jude is never going to be accused of soft peddling or or avoiding the concept of these truths. Nor, Nor should Christians avoid this horrifying reality for the sake of avoiding an uncomfortable situation Christians most certainly have been guilty of of handling this doctrine in an unloving manner, but that does not mean that there is not a passionately loving way to speak of these things. Remember, Jude had intended to write about something else, but necessity had arisen, and it is urgent, and thus he will speak without holding back. And it is love for these precious people that compels Jude to so urgently speak of hell's reality. And the the pronouncement of a prophetic woe, certainly uh, and primarily, uh, was the idea of of an authoritative condemnation and pronouncement of judgment. But it is important to note that the prophetic pronouncement of woe, such as this one, also includes, to some extent, a sense of the horror involved for those who under the condemnation. There's a genuine horror in the pronouncement of woe at the reality of what they will undergo. This is not some man with a placard taunting hell-deserving sinners. This is not some rallying cry of a self-righteous man uh, to others that somehow sees himself as measuring up and them not. 
Remember, this is a man who formerly did not believe, who lived in the household of the Lord Jesus growing up, formerly did not believe and was once headed to the same horrific, woeful destiny. Well, to conclude, I'll remind us of the fact that the prophet Isaiah was another woe-pronouncing prophet who, who did not shy away from pronouncing hard words of woe upon wicked nations and people. And yet when Isaiah was faced with the reality of the piercing holiness of God on his holy throne, he would, in a rather shocking manner, put the pronouncement of the curse of woe upon himself. Woe is me. I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah, like any true believer, knew that apart from the sovereign mercy of God, he too justly deserved the curse of eternal woe. We saw how Jude likened these false teachers to the, to the fruitless dead trees. Uh, the Lord Jesus similarly cursed a fruitless fig tree uh, as a picture of the fruitless false teachers and leaders of Israel, just as he would pronounce a series of curses of woe against them, and yet mere days later, for his own people, he would become the curse of woe for them, taking on himself the dreadful woe of the wrath of God, the the, the true woe and horror of, of what my, of what our sins deserve. That, that woe in all of its infinite and unbridled fury was poured out on the sinless Son of God. Infinite woe poured out on the one who deserved and only ever knew the blessing of God's favor and his face shining upon him in love. And the earth went black in darkness as the sun experienced the forsakenness and the abandonment by the Father in order that everyone who believes in him would never experience the darkness of the abandonment of God. He did this so that we would always and only ever know the light of his countenance shining upon us. And that is perspective that puts any of the woes of this world, and there are many, it puts any of the woes of this world in order. It is the cross All the dreadful woe that I deserve, that I rightfully deserve, has been taken away forever. And in its place, only blessing forever and ever. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well with my soul. Amen. O Lord, our God, would you bless the preaching of your word? Would you cause us to take comfort in the gospel? And would you bless us as we are built up in our faith in Jesus' name? Amen.